if they fired a missile at you and the flame from the missile stayed in a fixed position on your canopy, it was coming to you. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 28 of Cold War Conversations in partnership with the Cold War Museum. Today we are talking further with US Air Force pilot Buzz Carpenter. We talk about flying reconnaissance over Vietnam, the Skunk Works where secret US Air Force projects were developed, his time commanding Ramstein Air Base at the end of the Cold War and more. Thanks to all those who are supporting the podcast with monthly pledges and donations. It is much appreciated and will allow us to continue to expand the scope of the podcast. If you donate more than $5 a month, you get extras from the cutting room floor. And this week's episode's extra is a great anecdote from Buzz, where he describes an encounter with Jimmy Doolittle, who was awarded the Medal of Honor for personal valor and leadership as commander of the Doolittle Raid, a bold long-range retaliatory air raid during World War II on the Japanese main islands only four months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to these exclusive extras, go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Back to today's episode, where Buzz continues his story of his time in Vietnam, his work in the Pentagon, and when he served as Wing Commander at Ramstein Air Base. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, Buzz. The uh, first question I had was, why did you enlist in the Air Force? I came from a family that was very... My dad was an aeronautical engineer he worked in testing airplanes in World War II. He was a civilian. My godfather was a uh, aeronautical engineer. Uh, one of my uncles was an aeronautical engineer. And so I kind of grew up and uh, I always w- wanted to, to fly. I dreamed about flying. And, and when I was probably somewhere between eight or 10 years old, uh, when you used to go to the movie theater, they used to have the news of the week. And this particular time was the dedication of the Air Force Academy. And I just, uh, it really caught my attention and motivated me. So uh, that's how I ended up in the Air Force, because I applied for and eventually got in the Air Force Academy and uh, graduated from there and went to pilot training and spent the better part of 28 years flying different airplanes. Wow. And so when when did you uh, graduate from the Air Force Academy? I graduated from the Air Force Academy in June of 1967. Right, okay. And then you you had further pilot training after that? Yes, the pilot training was another year, and that took place uh, outside of Phoenix, Arizona, at a place called Williams Air Force Base. And you went through, you had about 30 hours, in a Cessna 172, a propeller airplane. Yeah. And then I want to say you probably had 100 hours 
in the T-37, which was a primary jet trainer. Mm-hmm. And then from there, if you uh, passed all the uh, tests, you went into the T-38, which was our high, perf- our high performance uh, trainer at that time. And I would later fly the T-38 because the T-38 was our companion trainer when, when we were flying the SR-71 because when we were home with the SR-71, we would get about three flights a month, anywhere right. from two and a half to four and a half hours. But then they tried to schedule you for at least eight flights a month in a T-38, which was typically an hour to an hour and a half on each one of those flights. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll come on to the SR-71 because I have got, unsurprisingly, a few questions for you on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what was the, the, the first aircraft that you flew operationally? When I graduated from pilot training, I, I went to fly C-141s. At that time, that was the Air Force's largest transport. And I flew out of an outfit in Georgia. And we basically, we were a special mission. I flew worldwide. And Ian, it was wonderful because I flew into Europe, into the Middle East, at least once a month, I flew into the Far East to Vietnam, supporting the, the Vietnam War. And it really taught me how to be a pilot in a very world uh, environment because you would land in bases in Europe that were very normal, you know, with approach and uh, the right kind of nav aids. And you could also land in North Africa where you flew over this runway and you there was nobody in the tower and you tried to figure out which the active runway was. So right. it really taught me a lot about flying. Yeah. Okay. And what, did you volunteer for that aircraft or, or were you, you know, they looked at your aptitude and thought, oh, <clears throat> this guy's really suited to uh, fly the Starlifter? Uh, no, it was a question of the order of merit you graduated in your class. You actually picked the airplane that you wanted to fly. And uh, from a uh, position in my class, I was kind of in the middle. So when I got my chance to pick, uh, I wanted to stay in uh, jets. I didn't want to be an instructor. Mm-hmm. And the C-141 to me seemed like the best choice. Yeah. Now, very shortly, I mean, I was only in the program two years, and I volunteered to go to Vietnam. And because I had upgraded to being an aircraft commander in the C-141 as a lieutenant, it then qualified me to fly any airplane uh, going to Southeast Asia. And I wanted to fly a fighter, and there were no fighters available during the two-month block period that I needed to go into a, a, a different kind of training. So they offered me a, an RF-4, basically a, a photo reconnaissance F-4 airplane. And I accepted that assignment. And that's how I got into reconnaissance. Right. And that, that's the plane that we're familiar with as the Phantom, isn't it? Exactly. And I ended up with about uh, 1,100 hours in RF-4s, also as an instructor pilot. But I I flew out of uh, Saigon in South Vietnam and then out of a base called Udorn, which was in northern Thailand, uh, before eventually ending up in Okinawa, Japan, uh, for the last three years that I was in the uh, RF-4 program. Right. Um, And what were your missions with with the RF-4? The 
The RF-4 was either pre-strike, they give you a series of targets in, in Vietnam and you go out and take pictures. And then when you came back, they would process it. And th those were the pictures they would give to the targeteers to identify targets. And also many times they gave them to the fighter uh, air crews so they could better see where were the targets that they were supposed to strike. We also did post-strike, which was uh, a little more hazardous because particularly the North Vietnamese knew that about uh, 20 to 30 minutes after an attack had taken place, an RF-4 flying by itself would be coming through with uh, cameras and recording the damage that had been inflicted by the fighters earlier on. And uh, so when I came into Southeast Asia, oh, the RF-4 was one of the units that had some of the highest uh, loss rates in the theater because a couple reasons. One, you weren't, you weren't as a whole group. And the second thing, if you were shot down, you had to wait for one, for them to discover you'd been shot down if the, you couldn't get the word out. And then secondly, wait for another wave of operations to come up and try to find where you were and then rescue you. Right. And what, what sort of uh, altitude were these missions being flown at? They were being flown at <clears throat> anywhere from 200 feet to uh, five to 10,000 feet. It just really depended on um, what kind of pictures they wanted you to take. Uh, at night, we use photo flashcards. So putting the photo flashcards out, as I recall, we were typically at 1,000 to 1,500 feet above the ground. So you could get a pretty good coverage from the uh, flash. And uh, like I said, during the day, it really depended on what they were looking for. Right. And what what was the, uh, I mean, uh, I was just wondering, what was the North Vietnamese anti-aircraft capability like? It was pretty good. Um, you know, they talk about the surface-to-air missiles. If you could see a missile and they didn't fire a whole bunch of them, you could normally outmaneuver them because right. uh, you had more flight control to turn into a missile and, and defeat it. But, but when they tied that, you came down because you were afraid of the missiles because at medium altitude, you were much more vulnerable to them. Well, now you got into the place where the anti-aircraft, the 23 millimeter or, or 37 millimeter, and those were pretty effective. Uh, we probably lost more airplanes with uh, AAA fire than we did with missiles. Right. So did you come back a couple of times with a few holes or did you manage to escape? Uh, <clears throat> minor holes. I was never, and I, and I saw missiles fired. Uh, fortunately, I was in formations because we were uh, simulating that we were wild weasels um, trying to get them to react so that the real wild weasels could see where the missile sites were and then attack them. So um, if they fired a missile at you, and, and and the flame from the missile stayed in a fixed position on your canopy, it was coming to you. If the missile plume that you could see was moving across your canopy or up and down, the missile was going after somebody else. Right. Jeez. So, I mean, the you say you went out, when you went out there, you knew there was a high casualty rate um, in these missions, how did you feel 
when you went on your first combat flight? Well, obviously, you're concerned because you don't know about the unknown. Uh, so it's kind of getting, you're never comfortable because you never know when something new will occur or you might have an aircraft malfunction or, or those kind of things that could, uh, make your, it much more challenging. But, you know, they, they kind of felt if you could survive your first 10 missions, you were probably going to survive yeah. because most of the mistakes are made early on <clears throat> and they're based on, well, they're based on inexperience. I mean, that's, that's why after Vietnam, when uh, our folks came back, our airmen, they said, you know, we need to practice in peacetime more like what we faced in combat. And so the famous red flag exercises that take place even today over the Nevada desert, of which uh, uh, pilots uh, come participate at least a couple times a year, try to emulate the stress and the strain and some of the uncertainty that you would have in combat so that when you actually went into combat, you were much more qualified to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think the RAF compete in that as well, don't they? They do. Yes. Yeah. And what, what instructions were you given should you have a malfunction and you, and you came down, were you given training in escape and evasion? techniques we were we all went through a special uh a survival school and because i was going into a high risk one i even had more advanced uh survival we we carried you know radios we had uh marking flares um you tried to get back to a, a safe area per se because there were areas marked out that we knew about in southeast asia that were specifically set up to tr that you try to get to because they would periodically survey those areas a couple times a day to see if there are possibly any missing airmen or army special forces on the ground or whatever that had escaped capture and were in these areas awaiting to be picked up. Uh, so there were codes we had that uh, we dealt with and we kind of knew what the operations were during the day. If you were flying in the morning with a group, and for some reason you were shot down your airplane, you pretty much knew that in the afternoon there would be another group coming, and that's when you would try to communicate with them if they hadn't already become aware that you had uh, gone down and they knew what position. If you were going down, as you were going down, you tried to get out radio calls to tell people where you were at that point mm -hmm. before you ejected from the airplane, but that wasn't always possible. Right. Okay. And th these are the Phantom is a two seater, isn't it? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing 
that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. That's correct. I, uh, my backseater was a uh, navigator, and he ran, uh, he ran most of the cameras were in the back, although I had some camera control in the front. Okay, and, and navigation was old school map, was it? Or Old school map for both of us. Um, now we had, there were some uh, covert TACAN sites in Southeast Asia for a while that we could use to kind of look at some fixed points, but most of it was exactly uh, in what you're saying. It was reading off a map and going to the areas that they had told you they wanted you to take pictures of and then returning b- back to your home base. Right. Wow. The F-117, the B-2, and the F-22. What, what can you tell me about that? When I left the SR program, I went to the Pentagon. Uh, I'd been an instructor in the SR, and um, I just wanted to try to do something else. After I'd been in the Pentagon for about a year and a half, uh, because of the clearances, some of the special clearances I had in the SR program, and I was already cleared into a couple special programs. They were looking for a replacement for the for the individual who was responsible for all the Air Force black money. And that basically, all these programs, you know, were very compartmented per se. And we had our own review type of system. And so you basically became the person who made the presentations to the general officers. And you also, uh, at times, would be the person that would go up on Capitol Hill and talk to uh, certain cleared House and Senate. That typically, on the Armed Services Committee, it was the majority leader and the minority leader, the same on the House Armed Services Committee. They would talk to their fellow members and say, vote yes or no. On these coded, you know, the 117 line didn't say F-117. The 117 line said have blue. So that was the by, code name. by black money, you mean f- military funding that wasn't defined to any projects. It was set aside exactly for right. projects. It was hidden inside the budget. I mean, it was all countered in the budget, but it was hidden in the budget. Congress reviewed it gave us special permission to use the money differently. And so when I came in the program, the 117 was already flying. It was in advanced tests, and we were actually building the airplanes. They were in production. And uh, I, have, uh, I took some of the senior leaders down to uh, Burbank, where the production line was taking place, so they could... Uh, see it and understand what the airplane was all about. And uh, at that time, we were fielding the 117s up at an air base in uh, northern Nevada desert called Tonopah. And that's where the shelters would be built. We were in the process of um, Northrop had the contract. They'd already won the contract for the B-2. And uh, we were in the design and uh, fabrication process at this point. I, I basically handled all the black money for the Air Force 1983 through 1984, two years. And I would go out with different leaders to 
to have them introduced to uh, uh, where we're doing the work in uh, Los Angeles for the B-2 discussions, like with General Welsh, who was the vice chief at the time. Should the B-2 have um, two seats or three seats in it? Originally, we thought we were going to have two pilots and a navigator and bombardier type, and the decision was made. It's plumbed. They could put a seat in sometime later, structurally, but the decision was made that you only have two pilots and that they would fulfill all those roles. And we had no idea we'd be flying that airplane for 40 hours, that these pilots would literally be sleeping on cot and exchanging. They take off with both in the seat. They refuel with both in the seat. They bomb with both in the seat. And they land with both in the seat. But the rest of the time, they're switching among themselves and have learned some really interesting sleep habits. Now, the F-22 was different. Because when I came in the program, the kind of the, the request for proposals was out. So you had seven different companies that I basically went out with, with uh, General Larry Welsh, who would later become the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force. And we re reviewed the proposals that they had for what this, the 117, yes, we call it a stealth fighter. But think of it really as a stealth bomber. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very low stealth, but high maintenance to keep that uh, the radar uh, signature low. But it was really a bomber. It carried two 2,000-pound bombs and basically uh, bombed optically. Uh, you had a, a very advanced FLIR system there that uh, could lock on the target, and then you could drop the laser-guided, not laser-guided. Well, yeah, I guess it was a laser-guided bomb uh, to the targets you'd identify. The F-22 was going to be a stealthy fighter, air-to-air -air fighter with super cruise, could cruise at a Mach 1.5 in uh, mill power, not an afterburner, and have all kinds of advancements. So basically, the time period I was in the program, we were going around and reviewing, uh, like, what did General Dynamics want to do? What did McDonald wanted to do? What did Boeing wanted to do? What did Lockheed wanted to do? Uh, I'm missing somebody. But anyway, as I was leaving the program, they down-selected to Lockheed and Northrop. And then you had the fly-off between the YF-22 and the YF-23, uh, which would take place through the the development through the 80s, the fly-off would take place in the late 80s or early 90s. Lockheed was selected, and the F-22 would be built. The sad thing is we didn't build the right number. After you've invested all that money and all that time mm -hmm. to develop such a magnificent airplane, we originally had to uh, buy 750, and we all knew you weren't going to buy that. Uh, it then went down to 600 and something. And they went down to 500. I think when I left, we were in the 600 range. Then it dropped down somewhere. Uh, the wall came down. Other things changed. You know, pieces breaking out. We don't need as many. Wrong. Uh, and they dropped from 325 down to what we ended up building, 187, 189, which is too small. Um, you know, they're really... Uh, stressed, particularly if you have multiple activities that trying to take place because numbers do count. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're looking at another generation of fighters. It would be much better, just like the B-2. Yeah. 
We're supposed yeah. to have 132 of them. And you, you invested all that money and you end up with 21. And now we're going to, now we're developing a new bomber because we just didn't build enough of them. It was really penny wise and pound foolish on the part of the Congress. Because the, the right number for the B-2 probably would have been something like uh, we did for the FB-111 or the B-58. If uh, Okay, you don't build 132, but let's build uh, 60 to 70. That would have been a much more manageable number. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting because with the with the US, I mean you rarely buy aircraft from other countries. I think the only example I can think of, and I think you built them under license, was the Harrier. That's right. Well, the um B fifty seven, the Canberra, that was right. a British airplane. Yep. Yeah, and NASA but still fly right, that, those, don't they? Yes, they do. Uh, the <laughs> long wing ones. Yeah. Yeah, they use it for communication relay. Uh, they're a great airplane for that uh, over Afghanistan because the communication is so terrible. Yeah, it's it's incredible how how long that's been um, you know been been used for. And is it's the U two still flying as well? Oh, more than ever, it's the number one re- requested airplane in the different theaters. And the reason for that, Ian, is that fairly inexpensive to operate are you true you don't get long hours but the longest mission is probably 10 or 11 and that stretches the pilot Four thousand pounds of sensors some of the most advanced sensors in the world these hyperspectral uh, type of sensors but the information comes off the airplane as it's being collected and plus at this high altitude there it picks up communications it intercepts radio calls between forces and things like that that can go directly to people to analyze half the world away because you keep moving it. The U-2 pilot doesn't do that. Yeah. Uh, it kind of does this, some of the same functions, but not, I mean, the rivet joint, the RC-135 that uh, the UK, our Royal Air Force now has three of, mm-hmm. is, is much more effective at that because of the size of the antennas that they can put in that airplane that you can't carry on a U-2. The spectrum of frequencies that you can intercept in an RC is is far greater, uh, particularly the low-frequency ones than you can do with a, a U-2. Yeah. But the U-2, uh, you can almost count on 24 hours a day somewhere in the world, there's a U-2 over Iraq, Afghanistan, in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. We're still doing a Camp David Accords. Um, a couple times a month, the U-2 flies with a regular camera down over Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and maybe part of Syria. And then that film is given to each one of those governments. It was wow. supposed to be for, in 1976, it was supposed to be done for six months. And here we are, still doing it, uh, wow. you know, all these years later. They're flying along the Korean DMZ regularly. And and are these the original airframes, or are new ones being built? They're all new. Okay. Uh, the ones that are being flown today are not the ones that Gary Powers' father flew, or that Gary Powers flew. These were basically the advanced ones that are 40% bigger. Almost all of them were built in the 80s. They're actually fairly young airplanes. And And that was a plane that was originally designed, what, in the late 40s? 
Uh, no, it was designed in seven months uh, in the 50s. I think Kelly Johnson got the contract in late 54. The first flight of a U-2 was seven months later. And I think it was operational 19 months from the time the contract was signed. Wow. That's an unbelievable. Yeah, short, think about it in, in terms today. Yeah. And I understand that you were instrumental in um, getting Gary Powers Jr. up in a U-2. I was. And matter of fact, I went to the chief of staff of the Air Force um, after we'd worked some of the stuff. He was, uh, Mike Ryan was two classes ahead of me at the Air Force Academy. So um, I've known Mike a long time. And I said, Mike, we got a great opportunity. You know, we've got all the approval. Why don't we fly Gary Powers Jr. on the 1st of May, 2000, 40 years after his father was shot down? Because I think it'll get some very positive press coverage, which it did. And... And they uh, then presented his mother a bunch of uh, medals that the father should have received um, that never did, you know, because he came back kind of underneath a cloud. Yeah, yeah, people, he did. People thought he should have killed himself or done something else, and um, that was really not the part of what they signed up to. I mean, they carried the the cyanide, either the pin or the or the pill if they wanted to, but it was optional. It was not a mandatory type of a thing. Yeah. And they weren't even officially military either. No, they had come out of the air force and they were now civilians working for the CIA. Yeah. 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 No, I had a great chat with, uh, Gary Powers jr. Um, uh, a few weeks back and it he's was a wonderful uh, guy. I've known yeah. him, um, since the nineties. Um, did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, he's been instrumental in a lot of stuff with the Cold War Museum. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that that's, you know, we're, we're, this podcast is sort of now working in a partnership with the Cold War Museum. So uh, I saw it, that when I went to the site. Yeah, yeah. So this interview that I'm doing with you will be another one that's, uh, you know, part of that partnership. No, it's a great project. It's surprising that the somewhere like the U.S. hasn't got a national Cold War museum of some kind. You know, that's a good point. Uh, I think they've kind of relegated that to there is, you know, at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, one of the hangars because I think there's either four or five hangers now that, but one of the hangers is the Cold War hangar. So mm -hmm. um, that's where they kind of display the Cold War aircraft and missiles and helicopters and those kind of things. Um, but there's not a, not a separate one like you're depicting. Yeah. Yeah. Can I have a quick chat with you about Ramstein? Um, so you were wing commander there after the Cold War? No. Uh, well, yes, because the wall had come down, and uh, I had the support wing, which was, think about that as a super base commander, because I had 5,000 people working for me. I had 1,000 Germans and 4,000 Americans. 
because it's the largest air base in, in Europe. Plus, we had 65,000 total Americans in that part of that were part of the Ramstein base complex, per se. Yeah. So it was quite a thing. And uh, I was a commander during Desert Storm. It was a, a very busy time period working with uh, our NATO alliance. Uh, we did a lot of things um, at Ramstein. There was um, training, looking at, you know, um, Saddam Hussein was really, he was dumb, but he was really also unlucky because East and West Germany were now coming together. Now you've got the the invasion of Kuwait. The Russians, it's it's kind of a, you know, the glossiness, the friendly time period. So the Russians shared a lot of stuff with us. And in East Germany, I can't remember the name of the range. There was a range, but they had a number of the Soviet uh, missile sites and other stuff that the that the Germans basically ran, East German, former East Germans mm-hmm. ran. So you were able to run our allied airplanes against the type of defenses that the Iraqis were going to throw up. Right. So, so you could see if, are, are your electronic countermeasures going to work? And, you know, one of the things like the French were only allowed to fly, much to their chagrin, but they understood why, um, in the western part of Iraq, because the Iraq, the Iraqi Air Force also had mirages, and they were trying to reduce the the possibility or probability of fratricide. Yeah, blue on blue, blue on blue type of a thing. Yeah. Uh, the French two star was a wonderful guy that was there at Ramstein, not officially on the base, but he was there. Uh, was kind of chagrined because he became the commander down there, and <laughs> the French government told him. We want you to perform well, but do not lose any airplanes. <laughs> and he came to me and says, what kind of a warrior am I that, that my most important guidance is don't lose any airplanes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must have been a really interesting period because oh, it was. obviously everything prior to then had been geared up for Warsaw Pact, you know, Soviet. And then there's almost a complete re-pivot and suddenly your best buddies with your former enemies to some degree. And that's true. And the other thing that you highlight there is that all the wings in Europe, I'm speaking of the American wings, we were the supported ones. Forces and supplies were going to flow into us to deal with the fold gap and the Warsaw Pact and all that. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, we are the supporters the war is not here. It's in the Middle East. And we have to send, we have to change our whole routine because now we have, to, I had 800 people down in Saudi Arabia supporting the operation. Um, so it was a complete change of, of mind. Uh, and when you went from being the one who was doing the conflict, being supported to the one who was supposed to provide the supplies. Yeah. Cause Ramstein would have been a, uh a big reforger base. So oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was all the, the reforger base. Yeah. We had more transports. I remember one night I counted, I think we had 30 some odd large airplanes on the ramp and, you know, basically Ramstein was a really, 
a fighter base that we modified to take airlift. It was not, it's not like, it wasn't like Frankfurt, mm. you know, designed completely for that. Uh, but, and we pumped more fuel than what we had thought our wartime rate would be uh, if there'd been a war in Europe. Cause they were, I mean, they were, the, the pipeline was just going 24 hours a day to keep the fuel coming into us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting what you were saying about, you know, you were testing out your electronic countermeasures in the former East Germany against the technology that you knew Saddam had. So were you talking directly with the Soviets and, and former East Germans about some of the capabilities there? We clearly were talking to the former East Germans. The I have no direct knowledge of the interface with uh, the former Soviets. Yeah. Um, obviously, we knew kind of what frequencies or things like that the Iraqis were going to come up on. Um, and exactly how they got that, if that was just taken from the East German sites that the now reunified Germany provided, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a fascinating period. That that end of the Cold War and that sudden end to the Cold War as well is well. You know, my wife and I were in Berlin the weekend before the wall came down on business, <laughs> and uh, with my boss, a two star general, and there was a couple other colonels and their wives. Um, we had dinner Sunday night in East Berlin. Well, Saturday, we were supposed to go into East Berlin, but that's when the Communist Party had this big rally in Alexanderplatz, the big plaza in the center part of what was East yeah. Berlin. Was this the and they booed the Communist Party. Yeah, they booed yeah. the Communist Party off the platform. <laughs> and so we're sitting there, and it was like a page out of 1984. We'd known there been all kinds of posters and protests and stuff the day before. Uh, it was absolutely cleaned. Uh, we were being followed, probably by the Stasi, because you had to be in uniform to right. go into East Berlin, just like the Soviets had to be in uniform to come into West Berlin. Yeah. And, you know, we were commenting at the end of the evening before we crossed back over. And we were on the east side of Brandenburg Gate looking west mm -hmm. and looking at each other and saying, you know, change is coming. But you couldn't have, you wouldn't. Your wildest imagination, you couldn't have predicted that four days later it would occur and it would occur peacefully. Mm. That was our our least probable scenario. Yeah. Uh, there was a whole bunch of other ones, you know, uh, civil war, uh, coups, uh, all kinds of bad things. But to have the wall breached and what happened and then and then the domino effect of all the you know, the former satellite countries all of a sudden collapsing also. Yeah. Yeah. No, incredi incredible times. Incredible times. Now, um, I understand your retirement is keeping you quite busy as well with the uh, Smithsonian, amongst others. I, I, it does. And I'm also working with uh, 29 other museums in that have blackbirds, including Duxford. I was at Duxford about two and a half years ago. 85 pilots and about 85 navs flew the air airplane operationally um, during the 25 years we operated it. Yeah. And I think you said to me 12 lost, none through enemy action. That's and correct. We built, we built 32. And, and when I give tours, 
I tell people the part of the reason we lost so many early on, there was no modeling and simulation. This airplane was built with a slide rule. You had to take it up and try and see what worked. Well, some of the things didn't work. Uh, it was as simple as that. Uh, the good news is, and something my wife uh, relished, because she knew how much I love flying the airplane, we never had an Air Force fatality. And there was only one, there was a Lockheed test engineer killed on a test flight trying something new in an SR. The pilot survived. And in the A-12 program, there were two pilots killed. Um, but that's the total of it. And you consider that you had to take it out and try it. Uh, we had a wonderful rocket ejection seat that was good. I mean, if you got to the point you didn't have any options, you did have the option because the ejection seat would save your life. Yeah. Even at uh, Mach 3 or? Yep. The, the one that the test engineer was killed, the airplane came apart at 3.12 Mach at 82,000 feet. I think he got hit by a piece of the airplane as it was disintegrating. Right. Uh, I may be wrong on that, right? but he was the only one that uh, died as a result yeah. of it. Well, I thought Spielberg did a good job on the Bridge of Spies. Yeah. Uh, because I actually met Gary Powers. They brought him up to Beale so he could see an SR, and he spent a day with us about uh, five months before he died in that, that helicopter accident. Right. Buzz. I really appreciate your time tonight. I'd like to say thank you for your service as well. Ben. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing because I really think history is just not being taught to our younger generation as it should be. Cold War, you know, there's a lot of focus on World War One, World War Two, and, and rightly so, but Cold War, a lot of kids out there have no idea what, exactly what right. went on. So, um, yeah, you, you and me both, we're still on a mission. <laughs> so you got it. So, well, it was great talking with you, and I look forward to maybe sometime meeting you over in the UK. Yeah, sure thing, sure thing. All right, thank you very much, Buzz. Take care. Well, that's it for part two of our Cold War conversation with Buzz Carpenter. Our show notes contain a number of interesting links to information our show notes are at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage and scroll down. If you like what you are listening to, do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests. Just search Cold War Conversations on Facebook. Lastly, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. It really helps to spread the word. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.